This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Always great to have your company. Well, what is it about Russia that continues to wind everyone up so much? What do you think? Why all the anger, the alarmist rhetoric, the ruthless drive to isolate a great power with a vast arsenal of nuclear weapons? Well, for five years now, certainly since the outbreak of the Ukraine standoff, February 2014, hyperventilating pundits and politicians on left and right have been warning that the bear is on the prowl and that Vladimir Putin is destroying democracy all across the globe. As a result, and many of you have heard me say this all too often on this show and elsewhere, the Russophobes have spread exaggerations about the Putin threat, which have fueled hatred and sowed misunderstanding. My next guest today agrees. There is, he argues, nothing peculiar or pathological in Russia's behaviour. It is simply protecting legitimate security interests in the Baltics, its near abroad, and the Middle East, and its objectives are limited. Stephen Cohen is Professor Emeritus in Russian Studies from NYU and Princeton, and is the author of The War with Russia, From Putin and Ukraine to Trump and Russiagate. That's just out. Steve, welcome back to Between the Lines. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be with you. Now, your critics all too often denounce you as a Russian apologist and a Putin stooge. Why do they continue to impugn your motives when you have decades of what many people argue uh, is r rigorous intellectual experience in this field? Well, it's become about me in the last five years, as you say, all this slurring of me. But it's a more general problem. Uh, generally speaking, anybody who has a public platform in the United States today, and there are not very many of us, and very few public platforms available anymore, who try to take, let's call it a balanced, more objective, more historical view of Russia, particularly American-Russian relations, are being slurred. How do we explain this? Well, Russia has always been toxic in America. I did a calculation the other day. And I was surprised myself to discover that of 100 years of American-Russian relations, there have been 75 years of Cold War out of 100. So that's a subject worth thinking about, maybe not today, but this is not unusual. But I think what makes it so severe today is it has to do with Putin, uh, the Russian leader since 2000. And in a word, I put it like this. There was the expectation among American political media elites that when the Soviet Union ended, Russia would become a subordinate partner of the United States in world affairs. And it looked for a decade or less in the 1990s like that might be the case because then Russian President Yeltsin was weak, needy, and President Clinton took advantage of him in a kind of uh, soft way that made it sound like a friendship. But the resentment was building in Russia. The resentment produced Putin could have been much worse. And I think it's the reaction to Putin primarily, the sense that the American media political elites were wrong when they thought that after the end of the Soviet Union, the United States alone would determine world affairs. And when Russia reemerged on the world stage, it was a shock, a bitter disappointment, and much of that continues to influence American thinking today about Russia and about people such as me who say this is not a bad thing. 
We need to deal with it. And there are a lot of good possibilities, but we're not taking those possibilities. Well, of course, you, like many realists such as George Kennan, the intellectual architect of the Containment Doctrine in 1947, in the 1990s, you both, among others, opposed NATO expansion. But remember, Steve, at the time, many Republicans and Democrats believed strongly that the expansion of the Atlantic Alliance eastwards was a benign move. Well, Tom, I mean, if I find out where you live and I come over to your house with my homies, my buddies, and they're all carrying weapons, <laughs> uh, I doubt that Tom's going to say, Steve, why are you so benign today? This is ridiculous. Yeah. It's preposterous. When the subject was debated, virtually everyone in the United States who knew anything about Russia signed a petition saying that if you expand NATO in the direction of Russia, much less directly to Russia's borders, where it is today, there is going to be a very bad reaction, a backlash. And we're now living with that for almost 20 years. So on that note, when we mentioned earlier in the program, five years ago, the Russians seized Crimea, and that ignited widespread condemnation, and it was widely perceived as evidence of Russian expansionism. Your argument, just to clarify, is that this was just Russia striking back at NATO encroachment on its territory, and uh, the Russian Black Sea Fleet, of course, had been based in Crimea for generations. That's your line, isn't it? Yeah, I go farther than that. I say that though Putin is blamed for the Ukrainian crisis, not only is that not historically accurate, but anyone sitting in the Kremlin would have had to react because we need to go back to how the Ukrainian crisis began in late 2013 and then on Maidan in 2014. It's presented in the West as a bad actor reaction to a benign Western policy that came offering Ukraine only Western economic and civilizational values. The only people who can believe that fairy tale is anyone who did not read the 1,000-page economic partnership agreement that NATO was offering Ukraine. Mm. Because there's a section in there called military security issues. It's clearly written there that in signing this so-called economic partnership, Ukraine would abide by the military security provisions of the European Union, which were and remain NATO. So it was an attempt in 2013-14 to bring Ukraine into NATO through the back door. This was understood in Kiev. It was understood in Moscow. It was a reckless provocation by the West. You have to tell me, Tom, why in 2013, Washington and the European Union, Brussels, tried to do a bilateral relationship economic with Ukraine that excluded Russia. Russia was Ukraine's largest trading partner. By the way, it remains so today. Why didn't they in 2013 offer what Putin was asking for, a tripartite trading agreement that would include Russia, Ukraine, and the European Union. And the reason is, it was not about trade. It was about NATO. But you're not suggesting that Moscow's or, or Putin's interventions in Ukraine has been legal or moral, are you, Steve? Well, I don't know. You'll have to ring up John Mersheimer, your friend. And <laughs> Regular guest on this show. Yep. I know. And ask him what legal and moral means in international affairs among great powers. Uh, I don't know whether you're referring to the American war in Iraq and Libya <laughs> or, or what we're doing in Venezuela today. Uh, we change regimes. And if we want them changed, we do it by force. So legal and moral are not 
bywords of great power. Okay, now what about Syria? Because we're all too often told that Russia's intervention in the civil war in mid to late 2015 helped the brutal Assad regime win the civil war and as a result kill hundreds of thousands of innocent Syrians, mainly Sunnis. How would you respond to that? Well, it's well documented. It's not my say-so. You could look it up. That the Obama administration was funding uh, people who came to look in Syria very much like jihadists. It was funding these anti-Assad groups. In 2015, uh, the Russian leader and the entire Russian policy class said to Obama, to the world, to the international community, uh, Putin said it at the United Nations, we now face a choice in Syria and we must decide who will be in Damascus Will it be the Islamic State or will it be Assad? The world's not perfect, but that's the choice. Any rational person would have chosen Assad over the Islamic State in Damascus. Certainly Israel did. It had no objection to Putin's military intervention in 2015. So what happened as a result of Russia's military invention, intervention? Trump has it half wrong. He keeps saying, we, the United States, destroyed the Islamic State. That's incorrect. The Islamic State was actually a state. Correct, Tom, in 2015? Cal- Caliphate, yeah. That means it ran the schools, it collected taxes, it recruited people. The Russian intervention destroyed that Islamic State in Syria, with the help of the Iranians and the Syrian army. But it was the statehood that was destroyed. Now we have 20 or 30 thousand perhaps uh, Islamic fighters roaming around that area, but no longer statehood. So I will say that there was an existential moment in 2015. And here's the larger point, Tom. Putin personally, in sit downs with with Obama, said, let us join hands in Syria. This is a threat equally to us. Let us join hands in Syria against international terrorism. Obama was tempted briefly, mm-hmm. but ultimately either was thwarted in, Mar- in, in Washington by what some people call the deep state, though I wouldn't, or Obama changed his mind for other reasons and refused. So Putin went ahead alone. So Trump is wrong. It was Russia that destroyed the Islamic State as a state, yeah. but he's right, it was destroyed. It's a fair point because you could argue that toppling the Assad regime, and this is an outcome that the West, most notably Obama, Hillary Clinton, David Cameron in Britain, they were enthusiastically encouraging this outcome. Uh, but if you brought down Assad, it probably would have led to the, handing Syria over to the jihadists And you just have to ask yourself, imagine an Islamic state based on the eastern Mediterranean. Well, Tom, as in life, politics is about choices and alternatives. What was the actual choice in 2015? Russia said it was a choice between Assad and the Islamic state. I believe that was a correct evaluation. I I mean, who did they think was going to come to power in Damascus if Assad was overthrown? Mm -hmm. Uh, Bill Clinton, Rachel Rachel Maddow. (laughs) And you think they might have learned after the the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the toppling of Gaddafi in 2011. Now, we've dealt with Ukraine. We've dealt with Syria. What about Skripal? Now, we had on the show late last year, Steve, uh, Mary Dijewski from The uh, Independent and The Guardian, 
And she continues to claim that Moscow was not involved in the Novichok attack. But what about evidence to the contrary? The UK authorities have laid their evidence on the table and they say that two men are behind the poisoning of former double agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia. They entered the UK under the names of Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Bosharov on March the 2nd and then on the 4th they used a modified perfume spray bottle containing the Novichok nerve agent poison, sprayed it around the front door of uh, Sergei Skripal. Both of them were left fighting for their lives in hospital. That was a nine network story on the evidence last September. And here's the ABC's Media Watch. President's police investigation involved 250 detectives, 1,400 witness statements and 11,000 hours of CCTV footage. And in the House of Commons, British PM Theresa May was even clearer about the culprits, blaming Russian military intelligence. The GRU is a highly disciplined organisation with a well-established chain of command. So this was not a rogue operation. It was almost certainly also approved outside the GRU at a senior level of the Russian state. Now, that was Theresa May in the Commons blaming the Kredlin for the Skripal poisoning. Now, ABC's Media Watch in September last year did a number on you, Steve, uh, me, uh, John Pilger of all people, the former Liberal MP, Ross Cameron. And my argument, and I'll be curious to get your response to all this, Steve, when the initial charge against Russia was made... There was no evidence in, on the public record linking uh, Moscow to the killings or, or the attempted killings, um, which is what uh, we said. Uh, that was true. The initial charge was based on speculation, not hard evidence. Um, but the question I'd have to you is, hasn't the British government since produced substantial evidence linking Russia to Skripal? If the British government has done so, I'm unaware of it. On the other hand... I can't claim expertise in the Skripal case. Uh, there's a person named Mark Chapman, I imagine him to be British, who publishes regularly in David Johnson's Russia List, which anyone can Google. And to my reading, he's utterly demolished the British government's case. Let me just begin with the ob obvious. This was said to be, and I quote, a highly lethal toxic poison, and yet both of the Skripals are alive today. The story, there's something wrong with the story from the beginning. In addition, why would the Kremlin, Putin, who at that moment was seeking better relations with the West, and particularly a partnership, including in Syria, run such an operation and the United Kingdom. If Russians were behind it, and I don't rule it out, I just don't know, but the official story doesn't hang together. But if Russians were behind it, uh, Prime Minister May simply doesn't know what she's talking about. And I would guess, based on what she said about the Skripal case, not well informed about the Skripal case either. We simply don't know. But the problem here, Tom, and this is a point I make in my new book, War with Russia, question mark, that in this new Cold War, uh, existential, uh, fateful decisions are being made on the basis of allegations, not on evidence. That didn't happen very often during the preceding Cold War. And it's happening now, and that's why this one is more dangerous.
Stephen Cohen is my guest. He's a professor emeritus in Russian studies from NYU and Princeton. And we've been talking about Western attitudes towards Russia in recent years in light of Ukraine, Syria, Skripal, and of course, Steve, uh, charges of Moscow's interference in America's presidential election. They've certainly strengthened the demand to treat Russia as the enemy. I was struck just this month, a Senate investigation concluded that there was no collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign in 2016. Will Trump's opponents accept it? No, because it's ingrained in American politics. The uh, <clears throat> Democratic Party and the now majority Democratic controlled House uh, intend to run with this. I imagine it'll be part of the next presidential election. But let me make a point, Tom, briefly. Uh, Russia gave allegations, claim, correct me if I'm wrong, that Russia meddled, that's the word that's used, meddled, M-E-D-D-L-E, in the 2016 American presidential election. That's the crux of the allegation. You would agree with that? Yes. All right. Tell me, Tom, if you know, when, since the Russian Civil War, Russia and America have not meddled mm -hmm. in each other's domestic politics. I could take you through the hundred years, but I'll just mention the following. Uh, President Wilson sent a military force to meddle in the Russian Civil War in 1918. To jump forward, the Clinton administration did everything possible on site to fix then Russian President Yeltsin's re-election. 1996. I was in Moscow. I observed it. They were all over the I place. I think Time magazine they, had a front page cover on it. When it was over, Time magazine glorified it. It said, Yanks to the rescue. And there was Yeltsin dressed as Yankee Doodle Dandy. So, <laughs> no, it's true. I'm not. I know, I know, I know. Go on. So the point is, for better or worse, there has been a long hundred year tradition of the two countries meddling in each other's domestic politics. Okay, but in the I, current context, though, we've got these allegations of collusion. Have we found any smoking gun? I mean, what about those indictments of uh, the Trump chairman, uh, Manafort, uh, Michael Flynn? What about that meeting in Trump Tower arranged in, I think it was June 2016, so that Trump's son, his son-in-law, his campaign chair, Manafort, they could receive apparently damaging information about Hillary Clinton from a contact in the Kremlin. Is that a smoking gun? So... Let's come back to collusion. Let's talk about Trump Tower very briefly. So this meeting is set up uh, via the uh, junior Trump, Don, who, when it comes to, to Russia, is not exactly a light bulb. He was completely uninformed. And he was told that there was a woman coming from Russia with dirt on Hillary Clinton. Correct? Mm -hmm. So he took the meeting. She didn't have any dirt on her Hillary Clinton. None at all. What did she have? A story about orphans. He had no idea what she was talking about. And he complained to his father, the woman wanted to talk about orphans. What's this about? Well, the fact that the Trump campaign didn't know what it's about tells you something important. As a result of the Magnitsky Act, which had penalized Russian companies for human rights violations, the Kremlin banned all American adoptions of orphans. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. What happened? Approximately 200 American families who had gone through the year-long process of travel and expense and getting to know these Russian orphans were deprived of their kids. So this woman comes and says to them, 
would you like a few orphans? And they had no idea what she was talking about. In other words, she was willing to swap orphans for some favorable resolution of a a Russian corporation she represented that had been caught up in the thicket of American sanctions. That was the long or the short of it. It was actually about orphans. And of course, the Trump people had no idea what she was talking about. As for collusion, it was financial corruption. America has been engaged in a financially corrupt relationship with Russian oligarchs since the 1990s. Petty financial corruption of the kind that guys like Manafort, and there are scores of these firms in the United States, the late Senator McCain had his own set of political operatives who go to other countries for a price to bring about an electoral outcome that's desired. Manafort was doing exactly what scores of American operators had done. So my conclusion is that selective prosecution, as in the case of Manafort, is persecution. If you're going to send Manafort at 69 or 70 to prison for the rest of his life and fine him, I don't know, $8 million, which will bankrupt his family, you should go down the list and do it to all these guys who have operated as lobbyists at home and abroad without registering. So this is selective prosecution. It makes you it's think that if Manafort never worked for Trump, would, would he be in this position right now? Probably not. No. My guest is Professor Stephen Cohen, one of the world's leading Russia experts. His new book is called The War with Russia, with a question mark. Now, Steve, if you're right about Russia and Trumpgate or Russiagate, why then can't we in the West work with the Kremlin when interests overlap, as they do, arguably, as you point out, in defeating Islamic jihadists? And also, and we haven't mentioned this, keeping in check a rising China. Why can't we do that? So you and I may have to quarrel a bit here. On the other hand, you live in Australia, and I live on the windy Upper West Side of New York, a little farther from China. (laughs) I don't see, quote, a rising China as anything other than a historical inevitability. China's time in history has come. And why it should be treated as a threat to anyone is not clear to me. Like Russia, I fear, China will be a threat if we make it a threat, because that's certainly what we did to Putin's Russia. But is it in America's interest to push Russia closer to China? Ah, now you come to the crucial issue. Yes and no. As a historian, I would argue that given the, what is it, 4,000-kilometer border they share, their need for each other's resources, raw materials, manufactured good, and capital, uh, Russia's ability to supply China, which is thirsty, with energy, that it's not so much a choice as a kind of natural outcome in world affairs. But that then comes back to the United States. Should we regard a growing uh, Russian-Chinese Uh, let's call it an alliance because it's almost that, right? They don't call it an alliance yet, but they may sign an alliance treaty very soon. We have driven them ever closer together, more closely than the natural resources and the economic dynamics would have made them Mm -hmm. because both see us as a threat Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and NATO. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, yeah. So you could argue if if you're worried about China, that the United States needs to change its policy toward Moscow and toward China. There's a lot of concern in Russia, by the way. I was there in November, December, and I heard it as I've heard it for years. There's a kind of underlying, sometimes not so underlying, racial anxiety about China. 
going way back in history to the Tartar invasion of old Russia, that the China is going to overrun Russia and absorb Siberia and uh, Russia will lose its uh, identity and place in world affairs to China. So there's anxiety. And I would say that probably at least 25 to 30 percent of the Russian political class would prefer an alliance with the United States. But the United States has deprived Moscow of that possibility. Every day, and on TV, and on talk shows, and on radio such as yours, there's discussion of what Russians call the pivot, P-I-V-O-T, the pivot, the pivot to the east. Russia is pivoting away from the west to the east. Now, that's a major theme in this little new book of mine, War with Russia? Question mark. This is a historic development, one brought about by American policy. Is it too late? To stop Russia's pivot to the east, away from the west, I'm not sure. Okay, well, that brings us back to Washington in 2019. Of course, we've got a presidential election next year. The position that you enunciate, it really reflects, am I right in saying, a political tradition with roots in the American past? Because wasn't it those cold warriors, Nixon and Reagan, who embraced detente with the Soviets? It's more than that, but you're right, but you're even righter than you think. Uh, I am professor emeritus at two universities, which means I have a lot of health care and it means I'm old. <laughs> In my long life, I entered public life uh, when I was a professor at Princeton in the 1970s, uh, better relations with Russia, introducing cooperation into the dangerous conflicts of the, of the last Cold War, that process, that policy was called detente, detente. Mm-hmm. We had three major detentes in the 20th century, under Eisenhower with Khrushchev, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. under Nixon with Brezhnev, and the most successful of all, President Reagan <clears throat> with Gorbachev, mm-hmm. the last Soviet leader. Which helped end the Cold War. <clears throat> Notice something interesting about those episodes. Each detente president was a Republican. Republican, yeah. A Republican, as is Trump, at least nominally, correct? Eisenhower, Nixon, and Reagan. Secondly, detente was considered a legitimate, though it was contested. It was always the subject of a, a political struggle. I participated in them, but it was a fair fight. What's different today? And you hinted at it. The idea of detente has been criminalized in the United States by this this false thing called Russiagate. Anyone who dare advocate better relations with Russia today is now Mm -hmm. in our major newspapers and on our cable TV said to be undergoing, undertaking suspicious activities. So your argument then is that even during the Cold War, we had a more vibrant debate about Russia than we do today. In those days, in the 70s and 80s, when we were fighting for detente, nobody suggested we were engaging in criminal activity. Today, they're saying that literally. I think you could also make the same argument, by the way, Steve, in Britain. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn is one of the few prominent Brits who supports engagement with the Kremlin, and he all too often gets denounced as a Putin puppet, doesn't he? Look, I can't tell you whether it's worse in Britain or worse in the United States. All I can do is quote a Russian adverb, obahuja, 
both are worst. <laughs> it's never been this toxic before. I mean, look at just to give you a, a remote but telling example. You know about this Butina woman, this young Russian woman mm-hmm. who's been held in solitary confinement. I mean, that woman did, as far as the prosecutors have produced evidence, nothing other than come to the United States and extol the virtues of Russia. She's a Russian citizen and urge American Russian detente. So finally, she confessed. She gave a plea. She wants to get out of prison. You know who does this sort of thing? Who who did it? The old Soviet authorities. This is not good, Tom. Steve, on that gloomy note, we'll have to leave it there. It's always great to have you on ABC Radio. I hope you stay on the air, Tom. <laughs> Stephen Cohen is author that's, of the war. <laughs> Stephen Cohen, he's the author of the war with Russia, from Putin and Ukraine to Trump and Russia Gate. Well, that's it for this week's show. Remember, if you'd like to hear the episode again or download our segments since 2014, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or you can listen via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can even subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next week. (laughs) 